we're starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and we're basically still in the introduction phase of this series as we study the life of Jesus by studying the life of David. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, I hope you found it faster than I did. I would have lost the sword drill today if we would have been playing a game of Sunday school class. Um, says this, Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy. Now circle that word and just write Genesis up above it. If you were here last week, the word genealogy is, the root word of that word is Genesis. It means the beginning or the source of um, or the very beginning of the history of. So Matthew's telling us that this is the history of, this is the beginning of, The information we need to know about what's going to follow starts here. And he says, this is the beginning of the story of Jesus. This is a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, it's interesting that we're studying the life of David this summer because 2014 at JCI is all about Jesus. And we decided last September that 2014 would be the year of Jesus at our church. And for 52 Sundays, we would commit 52 Sundays to the teaching, the life, the miracles, the ministry of Jesus. And we are doing that. But here we are in the summer taking 12 of those 52 and we're talking about David. Because what we learn according to the book of Matthew is that if you really want to understand who Jesus is, you have to understand who David is. Because Matthew introduces us to him as here's Jesus, the son of David. Now, David was not Jesus' father. We said last week Joseph was. So as we get into the spiritual DNA of Jesus, we realize that we need to get into the spiritual DNA of David. So we're doing a series this summer that we call Bedtime Stories, Volume 3. It's the third summer. We've just taught pure stories of the Bible to try to apply them to our life, and we're learning about the life of David. And today we pick up the life of David in 1 Samuel chapter 22. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go backwards almost to the very beginning, and we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 22. And as we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22, we pick up in the life of David. Now last week we met David for the very first time, and we learned about the heart of David And we know that the Messiah would come in the spiritual heart of of the line of David. So we learned a lot about how Jesus loves people by looking at how David was shaped in his heart and in his spirit. Between then and now, David has has gone and he's killed a giant. Um, David is gone and uh, and he's gotten married to the king's daughter. David has become the commander-in-chief of Israel's armies. He's conquered almost all of their enemies. But the king has become jealous of David because the people really follow David more than they do him. His name is Saul. So David is now in hiding, basically on the run. He's an outlaw from the government of Israel because the king of Israel wants him dead because he believes that he's a threat to his throne. Although David has no intentions of becoming the king of Israel, it's what God has anointed him for. So in 1 Samuel 22, we find David in hiding. Um, David, who is the most famous man in Israel, David, who probably has done more for the people of Israel than anyone else, is hiding from the king of Israel and the people of Israel because for the king's favor, they're all trying to turn over David so that the king can kill him and the king can give them great riches. So in 1 Samuel chapter 22, we find David in hiding, but we find something interesting about this man who would become Israel's king. In 1 Samuel 22, 1, it says, so David left Gath. You might circle the word Gath just so that you can be aware that was in the country of Philistia. Uh, the people of the Philistines. So David actually moved to Philistia. Now you say, where is Philistia on a modern day map? The Philistines had five major cities, Ashdod, Eshkelon, Gath, Gaza, 
and there was one more, I think Ekron, um, were the five major cities of Philistia. Um, the biggest one, Gaza, kind of tips you off on a map where it is today. It's in the Gaza Strip. So literally, if you look at a map of Israel, the Gaza Strip was ancient Philistia, was, was where the Philistines lived. So David, running from Saul, thought the safest place to be is in a foreign country that hates Saul. So he left, um, and he went to the city of Gath, and he lived there for a little while. And then he thought, I can't live among these Philistines. They want to kill me too because of what I dig to Goliath. So it says, David left Gath, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. Now, when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab. It's another foreign country. And he said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me. So he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, don't stay in the stronghold, go into the land of Judah. So David left and he went into the forest of Hareth. Now we learned a lot about David last week, but what we learn about David this week as we journey into his leadership and his time as the king of Israel through the promise that God gave him that the Messiah would come in his line, here's what we learn about David, that David, David's first leadership and David's best known leadership was as the leader of a broken people. And as we continue to look at Jesus, remember Christians, or the word Christian is translated a follower of Christ or a follower of Jesus. As we continue to look at how to become like Jesus, it's real good to look at David because David, in human terms, was as close to the heart of Jesus as any human being ever has been. So to look at the heart of David teaches us a lot about the heart of Jesus and the heart of a Christian. And we see that Christians should have a heart for broken people. Now, as we back up, we learned last week, David was a special leader in Israel because of his heart for God. And God did a nationwide search for the person who loved him the most. And on your sermon notes, we'll see that, that God's requirement for the leader he would choose, the Lord said to Samuel, who was finding God's leader on God's behalf, don't consider speaking of his older brother, his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at, thing, as, at things that people look at. People look at outward appearance but I, God, look at the heart. So we know David became a special leader because of his heart for God. We said last week that David loved God and he followed God, which is a rare combination in our world. And I ask you two questions, and I ask you to answer them as quickly as you could to see the difference between loving God and following God. My first question was this. Don't answer out loud, but do you love God? Most people sitting in church on a Sunday morning would immediately respond to that question. Yeah, do you love God? Yes. Will you do whatever God asks you to do? Most of us don't answer that question as quickly with, of course. But David did. You see, David loved God, but David followed God. His heart and his spirit were intimately connected. And if you would have asked David, David, do you love God? He would have said, of course. If you would have said, David, will you do whatever God wants you to do? He would have said, of course. And then God said, I need you to kill a giant. David said, sure. And then God said, I need you to overthrow the Philistine. And David said, sure. And then God said, I need you to overthrow Moab and Edom. And David said, sure. There was nothing that God wanted David to do that David wouldn't do because of his heart for God. So David had a special heart for God. And I gave you last week what we called our 2014 summer heart for God plan. And if you weren't here, you're probably not going to jot all this down. But I want to, 
I just want to remind you what our goal is for our people at our church this year. Here's what I'm hoping all of us will do. Six things that this summer we'll make time for God in the midst of an extremely busy schedule for those of you with kids and jobs and lives and vacations and reunions and everything else that goes on in the summer. Make time for God. I, I challenged you last week to spend time with God. And I even told you if, if you don't normally read your Bible, where to read this summer so that you could spend time with God and really enjoy it. I ask you to read about the life of David in First and Second Samuel, the first two chapters of Kings, and then to read the writings of David in the Psalms. 73 of the 150 Psalms uh, have at the very beginning of them a Psalm of David. So if we just read about the life of David and the writings of David, I believe all of us are going to get to know God a little better. I ask you to learn to meditate within worship moments, to start your mornings with worship and to end your days with worship and to fill your commute with worship. I ask you to finally fight the big spiritual battles in life as we learn about a guy who was willing to kill a giant. I ask you to get obedient to the difficult spiritual things in life and become a great follower so that you could answer like David, will you do whatever God asks you to? The answer is always yes first. Sometimes we ask how second, but the answer is always yes first. And then I ask every day, I ask you to ask every day for the Spirit of God to live within you. Now, I don't know how many of you did one of those things this week or six of those things this week, but I will reiterate, I believe if you will spend your summer doing those six things, that your heart for God is going to grow this summer. So let me challenge you this summer because this is a really big deal. Let's pursue this summer having a heart for God like David. David was a special leader because he had a heart for God. But we learned today that David was a really special leader because of his heart for people. David wasn't just God's man because of how much he loved God. David wasn't just God's man because of how much he was willing to follow God. David was God's man because of how much he was willing to love people on God's behalf. And 1 Samuel 22.2 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And it's a verse that I memorized and prayed over a lot as we were starting our church in the fall of 2010 and in the early months of January of 2011 and February and March. Because here's what we learned about the people that David started with on the run from the king of Israel and the people of Israel and the armies of Israel God sends David a few people to help him and look at the condition of these people. We would look at it and say, God sent him the worst of the worst. 22-2, all those who were in distress, all those who were in debt, and all those who were discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander, and about 400 men were with him. Now, we talked last week, and we distinguished between King Saul and, and what would become King David. And as you just read through scripture, we learn that King Saul had a heart to lead the nation. He was willing to lead the nation. But we find that David had a heart to lead people. You see, before Saul was ever asked to lead a person, Saul was asked to lead a nation. And because he was always focused nationally, he never really really established a heart for people. But before David was told to lead the nation, he was told to lead people. And the people that he had to lead were some jacked up people, according to scripture, But this is the difference between Saul and David. There's a lot of people who have a heart for the church, but not a heart for people in the church. There's a lot of people who have a heart for people in the community who who need Jesus in their life, but they don't have a relationship with one of them. So they have a heart for big things without a heart for people. And it's why when you read about King Saul, there's about 25 people in Scripture in King Saul's administration that are mentioned. 
While in David's, there are more than 250 because David was a leader of people. It's why the life of King Saul in Scripture has 25 chapters of the Bible dedicated to it, while the life of David in Scripture has 135 chapters of the Bible devoted to it. Because David's story is the, the story of David and his God and his people that he was leading and the people that he was close to. But boy, this original crew had to be a tough crew to lead. Because we see that David's leadership attracted and cared for hurting people. Now, man, it's fun to lead leaders who are all healthy and going 1,000 miles an hour. And it takes time to lead people who are hurting. But the first thing we learn about the people that David led is that they all lived stressed out. Now, I don't know how many stressed out people we have in the house today, but I'm assuming some of us would have fit into David's first little crew of 400. Stressed out? Yeah, I qualify. We learn that David's leadership gave a chance to those who had been given up on. We learn that David surrounded himself with people who needed a second chance and were ready to make the most of their second chance. And I don't know about you, but again, I'm sure there are some people in the house today who, who need a second chance. Someone has given up on you. It's refreshing today to hear that God has not. And we see that David's leadership restored broken people. David's leadership restored broken people. Now, if we go back and look at those bullet points, you really, I hope you've already circled in 1 Samuel 22 too, these type of people. But let's just talk about these people for a minute and let's just find ourselves in the text today, if we could. It says, all those who were in distress. Would you circle that word, distress? All who were in distress. It literally means not just stressed out, but a state of being continually stressed out. Now, I don't know how many of you in here think that God can't use you, or you're not even thinking about if you have time for God to use you, or whether someone will come alongside you to help you, but I wonder how many people thought that they were not fit for service in God's kingdom because they live in a life where they are continually in a state of being stressed out or anxiety-filled. David led a group of men who came to him in a state of extreme stress. It says, all those who were in distress or in debt. I want you to circle that word, in debt. Boy, David could have used a Dave Ramsey seminar with all of his guys who gathered to him at the cave, right? Like they needed to learn how to pay off their debt. Now, the one thing that you and I have that they don't have, I'm sure we have higher interest rates on our debt, but in those days, if you were in debt, your kids could be taken away from you as slaves. In those days, your spouse could be taken away from you. In those days, your home could be reclaimed from you. In those days, you yourself could have to go serve in slavery till your debt was paid off. And for those who had a mountain of debt that couldn't be paid back, literally, their life was over. So you had people coming to David who literally, before David, their life was over. But David saw in them the ability for a second chance. Now, some of you... You look at your marriage or your first marriage or your second marriage, and you say, Christian, my life is over. You look at a tragedy that you've gone through, you say, Christian, my life is over. You look at a job that you've recently lost, you say, Christian, my life is over. You look at somehow the debt that you've accumulated or the dream you had that just hasn't come to fruition, and you say, Christian, the, 
my life is over. And David would say as your leader, no, it's just beginning this second chance is going to be the greatest one that you ever needed. And then in verse 2 it says, those who were discontented. Now the word contentment is translated a state of happiness and satisfaction. So discontentment is a state of unhappiness or dissatisfaction. David had guys come to him who probably the meals were never good enough for them. The sermons were never good enough for them. The the time David spent with them was never good enough for them. The land they conquered was never good enough for them. The, The reward they received for the land they conquered was never... Like David had to put up, I'm sure, with some really frustrated people. They were broke. They were stressed out. They were unhappy. They were continually dissatisfied. But David said, you are who God has given me. Now let's go and do something for God. The fact is 400 spiritually broken and culturally outcast people became the greatest leaders in the history of Israel under David. They took their past and they said, we're going to leave that in the past and we are going to come together. We might be broke. We might be spiritually bankrupt. Like we may be spiritually tired. We may be spiritually stressed out. We may be dissatisfied with everything in life, but together we're going to come together and do something special. Now, I remember in the early days of our church asking our core team and our launch team to pray that God would send us people like 1 Samuel 22 too. I said, let's pray that every hurting person in Lee Summit, in Cass County, in Independence, in Raymond, let's pray that all those people will come to our church and let's be the church that prays that we can be known as the church of jacked up people. Like, like let's be the church... That when people look at what we've done, they're amazed that our church could do anything because of how messed up all of us used to be. And that's still my goal for our church. That the testimony of our church will not be the worship, the lights, the preaching, the kids ministry, the student ministry. But that what people know about our church is people who used to really be messed up have come here, have gotten a second chance. And now they're really making a big difference in the world. This was the story of David and his men. You say, what was the key to the story? The key was they had a leader who believed in God's best for the lives of broken people. They had a leader who believed in God's best for the lives of broken people. And here's where we now insert the life of Jesus into the story of David. Because we're told that a Messiah, a Savior would come and he'd come in the line of David with the spiritual DNA of David. And here's what you need to know about Jesus because you cannot sign up to serve in David's army today, but you can sign up to be a follower of Jesus today. As we look at the third key to this message, Jesus' heart for broken people as the son of David was the key to his ministry. The thing that made Jesus' ministry distinct, the thing that made Jesus' ministry stand out, this wasn't just the key to Jesus' ministry, it was the one identifying factor of Jesus' ministry that Jesus believed in God's best for the lives of broken people. And we see that all over scripture. When John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, said, are you really the Savior who's come as the Son of David? We see in Jesus' message to John the Baptist, John, 
God's best for hurting people is happening. In Matthew eleven two through 6, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus said, go tell John that God's best is being done in the lives of broken people. That identifies my ministry as the ministry of the Messiah. But that wasn't just Jesus' message. This was Jesus' ministry to people that Scripture highlighted. I've just pulled one verse from the Gospel text, but we see this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In summary, every now and then you have these summary moments that said, like, this is what Jesus does. And in Matthew 9, 35 through 38, we have one of these summary moments. Here's the type of stuff Jesus did. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into the harvest field. Every now and then they would say, let's just summarize what Jesus is doing. Jesus is teaching people about God's best for them, and he's healing broken people. This is Jesus' ministry. But then Jesus took it one step further because Jesus, when asked what would distinguish one of his followers from the world, Jesus' measure of a Christian was somebody who would basically believe in God's best for someone's second chance and somebody who would serve people who desperately needed a second chance. In Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him. He's going to sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he'll separate the people from one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also also answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and didn't help you? And he'll reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you didn't do for one of the least of these, you didn't do for me. Then they'll go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus said, people who follow me will be known for their awareness and their actions in the lives of hurting people. They'll believe God's best for the second chance of hurting people. Many people in modern-day Christianity have started calling this text in Matthew 25 the great compassion. And they do that because they they put it right up where they're with the great teachings of Jesus on what identifies a Christian's. 
Remember, Christians are not one of the keys to being a Christian, not just one of the keys, but one of the identifying marks of a Christian is how they care for hurting people. So last week we had a new attender luncheon, and every new attender luncheon I say, here's our goals for you. We want you to follow the great commandment, which just means love God. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Like, what's the one spiritual law I need to know? And Jesus said, you need to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Like, this is the most important thing for you. So when we get together, we want to teach you how to love God. We want the the people in our church to believe in and follow the great commission, which means we want them to love people. We want them to love people enough to tell people who don't know who Jesus is about Jesus or to at least take the step to tell people who don't know Jesus about our church so you can bring them to church and we can tell them about Jesus. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus said, as my disciples, you've got to go and tell and teach people about Jesus. Like, that's one of your roles on planet Earth. But then there's this great compassion that stands up next to them, which means that Christians are engaged in helping hurting people. So we look at what Jesus says a Christian is, and a Christian is someone who loves God, a Christian is someone who loves God or loves people and try enough to tell them about Jesus. And a Christian is someone who helps hurting people. Now we see David do that. And we see Jesus as the son of David do that. Question is, do we see Christians who are followers of Jesus doing that? Because as we look at the application of our summer of 2014, the reality is Jesus was the son of David and Christians are followers of Jesus. We could literally say Jesus was the son of David and we are the son of Jesus. Spiritually, we're supposed to have the same type of DNA. The question we have to ask then is Jesus' heart look like David's? Clearly, does our heart look like the heart of Jesus? Jesus' heart looked like David's. Like 1 Samuel 22.2 could have been applied to Jesus. People who were broke, people who were stressed out, people who were filled with anxiety, people who needed a second chance... Those people came to David. Those people came to Jesus. Do those people flock to JCI? The question is, do those people flock to the people of JCI? Like, do broke, hurting people who need a second chance look at you and know that you might be someone who believes in them when everyone else has cut them off because there's something special about you? Jesus' heart looked like David. Does our heart look like the heart of Jesus? I've got kind of an answer for you that's also a question. That is one of my favorite, favorite guesses about Scripture. And here's the answer slash question. What does Robin Hood have to do with my faith? What does Robin Hood have to do with my faith? And let me take you down a little, a little trail. Beginning in 1228 A.D., which, gosh, that's like 800 years ago, the name Robin Hood began to appear in popular English literature, the story about basically an outlaw, but who was a good guy, who lived in Sherwood Forest, um, running from the sheriff of Nottingham, uh, and basically he would steal from the rich and give it to the poor. This, this was the story of Robin Hood. It was a story about an outlaw, who really wasn't an outlaw. Um, it was a story about a good guy, who was running from a bad guy who was in charge, who would go on raids and he would steal from rich people and give it to the poor people so they had as much as they wanted and he lived in a forest. Now, I ask you about the story of Robin Hood because I I believe, it's just my personal belief, I can't prove this, it's just my belief because I know how much further scripture was written before English literature. I believe the story of Robin Hood is based on the story of David. 
Because if you read closely in 1 Samuel 22, 5, it says, The prophet Gad said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and he went into the, what is it? He went into the forest of Hereth. It was the great forest in Judah. And we read that for the next several years, David and his men, I, I don't know that David called them merry men. I don't know that any of them wore tights. I don't, well, they probably did shoot bow and arrow, some of them, but I don't know that they wore the little pointy hat. Um, David and his men would carry out raids against people in all the surrounding countries, and they would take their money, and they would give it to the poor people in Judah that King Saul, who I believe is the sheriff of Nottingham, um, was depriving of their money. And this is one of the best-known stories of David, that David and his band of men lived in the forest, and they basically went and performed raids on the enemies of God to take their stuff and give it to the people of God who were broke. So you may not remember everything about David, but I know you know a lot of, about Robin Hood, and you've probably seen a movie or two. The thought of Robin Hood, the thought of David, is this thought that I have to use my life to make sure that people who don't have anything have something, and I need to use what God has given me and who God has made me to be, I need to use that to have a difference and make a difference on others. And the reality is, when we look at David, when we look at Jesus, when we look at Robin Hood, the reality is found people find people. Found people, they find people. People who have been rescued from something, it should be deep in their heart to see other people rescued from something as well. And this is the, the heart of David, and this is the heart of Jesus, and it's supposed to be the heart of Jesus' followers that, man, God picked me up and gave me a second chance. Who can I help pick up and give a second chance to? I've heard a lot of pastors say it this way, saved people desire to save people. Like people whose lives and eternities and spirits have been transformed, they have this desire because they're so grateful of what God has done for them. They have this desire to see this done in the lives of other people as well. And this is where kind of Jesus and David, and forgive the blasphemy and the heresy of putting Robin Hood in the category, but I think you'll remember him more. This is where all this kind of meshes together. There's this thought that what God does for me, I do for others. And there's this thought that I've always got this awareness for people who used to be in a situation like me that I can pull up. So how do we break down this message into spiritual application? Here would be number seven. If I were giving you a list of things to do this summer, make time for God, spend time with God, live your life in worshipful moments. If we went through that list, you know, conquer your giants, say yes to the difficult things, if we added number seven to that list, here would be number seven for you this summer. Would you work to find somebody that needs God to save them this summer? And would you point them to Jesus? You say, well, Christian, where am I going to find someone like that? I take you to a quote that I heard the month we started this church in 2011 at a conference I was at from Judd Wilhite, who's the lead pastor of Central Christian Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. He's preaching to a group of preachers. And he said this comment, if your target is hurting people, you'll always have an audience. So he said, Christian, who, who do I find this summer that I can point to Jesus? Who do you know that's getting divorced? You know, almost every one of us in this room knows someone who in the last calendar year has gone through a divorce. Probably every one of us in this room. 
Who do you know who has lost a job? You know, probably every one of us in this room knows somebody who in the last calendar year has lost a job. Who has recently gotten cancer? I shouldn't say it again, but I will. Do you know probably everyone in this room knows somebody at work or in the neighborhood or on our kids' ball team or in our family who's gotten cancer? How do I find someone to point to Jesus? Look for hurting people. Follow the tears. Because if you will look for hurting people, like David, like Jesus, like Robin Hood, the man in tights, if you will look for hurting people, if you just open your eyes to be aware from them, you'll find them everywhere. And we want to be a church that has a heart for God. That's huge. As a matter of fact, I don't believe we can have a heart for people until we have a heart for God. But we want to be a a group of people who have such a heart for God that we don't create a monastery that's just for us. But that our heart for God drives us back into the forests and the villages of our life to find hurting people to point to Jesus. Because I don't know about you, but I'm guessing in your life there are some distressed, in debt, discontented people who need a second chance. Perhaps there are some people in this room today who are in distress or in debt or just discontent with where they are in life right now who need a second chance. Found people, find people. Saved people, desire to save people. And if you're here today, all I can tell you is somebody who was formerly distressed and deeper in debt that I should have been and more discontented than allowed me to have joy in life. As somebody who's come through that, I have a heart to see your heart healed and comforted. And then I have a mission for you to go get more like you and to bring them back. So the story of our church was to find hurting people and help them. The question is, that, is that still the story of our church? Are we still focused on finding hurting people and helping them? Or have we gotten comfortable enough with our numbers and our teams and our worship and our friends that this is kind of about us and not people who aren't here yet? The reality is when you invite people to church, you're helping hurting people. When you serve at this church, you're helping hurting people. When you say hi to someone on the sidewalk, when, when you um, work with their infants or their two-year-olds or you help with their children or you help with their students or you set up a chair or you pass out Bibles or you set up pipe and drape or you run the soundboard or set up all this stuff. When you serve at church, you're serving hurting people, whether you know it or not. When you give, you're giving to hurting people. I told our new attender luncheon, as of last Sunday, our church has given away $228,000 since we started two and a half years ago to hurting people. And when you attend, when you attend, you're setting an example for a hurting person who may be distressed and in debt and discontented, and they're watching you, they're watching you worship, they're watching you smile, they're watching you engage, they're watching you take notes, and they're saying, this person has made it, I can make it too. So just your presence is a big deal. But your ministry here and your mission outside of this place, like David, like Jesus, could change lives drastically. Would you this summer put your focus on making that happen in the life of somebody who needs Jesus? Let's pray together.